0: Welcome to CropWatch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Welcome to the CropWatch Podcast. I'm Michael Sondelar, Cropping Systems Extension Educator. For today's CropWatch Podcast, we'll be talking about corn and soybean diseases in the midseason. Today, I'll be joined by Dr. Tamara Jackson-Zims. Dr. Jackson, would you like to introduce yourself more? I'm sorry, Dr. Jackson-Zims.
1: That's quite all right, yes. My name is Tamara Jackson Zims, and I am an extension specialist for Nebraska Extension covering diseases of corn and grain sorghum statewide in Nebraska, as well as soybean diseases.
0: So it has not been a very normal growing season so far. I think that can be put across the state. I'm out, I'm walking through stands of corn and some of them are finally starting to be very even, but when I'm out walking through the cornfields, what are some of the things I should be starting to look at now since uh, corn is starting to move through into that V5, maybe V7, if you were lucky with early season corn, what should I be looking for?
1: Well, there's a lot of things, of course, that uh, can go wrong out there, and it's great to finally have a crop up in most of these fields. One of the things that I've gotten a lot of questions about this year and this spring especially is about nematodes affecting corn. And when we talk about nematodes, most people think about soybean cyst nematode in soybean but actually there's a number of different species and genera that can affect corn and in Nebraska we have a long history of having areas that have had nematode problems and now that we have a few new products becoming available and our toolbox has seed treatment nematicides People are asking more questions about them, and we're going back and and reviewing some of those things that we haven't talked about in a while.
0: So what would be the symptoms of nematodes? Because I'm guessing if you want to use a nemicide, it's best to know if you have a history of these nematodes in your field.
1: Well, that's right. And nematodes of corn are quite complicated in, in several ways. And in particular we're talking about eight or ten different species, even genera, different types of corn nematodes. Some of those even feed on other crops like soybean or other uh, sorghum or just about anything else you might plant. These nematodes feed in different ways, so they cause different types of damage. And the types of damage they cause varies a lot. And so the appearance and the symptoms that you might encounter may look different and so um, unfortunately we have a history of nematode damage and i think for decades we've conditioned people to believe that you have these big almost dead spots in a field where you've got severe stunting and and that it's only in sandy fields and and much of that is is based on misconceptions and i want to make sure people understand that and uh, the reality is that we've got nematodes like sting nematode and needle nematode that do cause that type of damage that's very severe and causes those very severely affected areas in fields and you'll only see those on sandy fields but the reality is is that there are a number of other nematodes that are much smaller in size relative to each other and they don't require sand and so you can find plant parasitic nematodes those are the bad guys in every single field and so what determines whether or not you have a problem depends on which ones you have and how many there are and so I would look for areas of stunting or yellow plants and patches in the field um Be sure and carry your spade out to take a closer look. And when you dig up some of those plants, if you see root damage on some of them, uh, nematodes can cause some pretty severe root damage uh, lesions, or or stubbiness, or or branching. There's a lot of different types of symptoms, and so from there, if uh, you think you have nematode damage and your yields aren't meeting your goals, you might want to consider collecting a nematode sample and submitting it to a lab for analysis.
0: So, when I collect the sample, what what are the labs in the local areas that I would want to submit these nematode samples to? Um,
1: in Nebraska. You have a couple of options and so our lab at the UNL Plant and Pest Diagnostic Clinic on East Campus does accept and process nematode samples from corn. You need to be very clear that those samples are from corn and you want the nematodes analyzed that you might find from corn. It's a very different process than what we use for soybean cyst nematode. And actually, when you look at those, you uh, you have to keep in mind too that you'll be charged for the ones that come from corn for corn and nematode analysis. Those are gonna cost you about $40 per sample, whereas soybean cyst nematode analysis is free of charge right now. And the process being much different, that lab might need you to do something different. You may not just need to bring in soil. You might need to also collect additional small plants for root analysis. And so when our lab processes them, we, we will run those samples as well, or we'll take the tiny root fragments from your soil sample. And when you're using that probe to puncture down along the row, uh, you should be getting roots in there. You should hear those roots popping and snapping as you collect those samples. We collect those root fragments out of there and then extract nematodes from them. Um, I also forgot to mention, too, there's a second lab in Nebraska that we'll collect and process nematode samples, and that is called Nematest in in Lincoln as well. There's also a few other labs in other states available. If you do send a sample out of state, it's important, though, that you let them know it's coming and, and you confirm that they have the federal permit that allows them to legally accept those samples.
0: So, Tamara, some of the important takeaways from what you've discussed is that there are Still some myths that are not true with uh, corn nematodes, uh, which are that they only occur in uh, sandy soil and they're only found in large areas of die-off or stunted growth. So it's important to um, look and scout for these in non-sandy soils, even though the effects will probably be more visible in the sandy soils. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that's correct. And, and there are nematodes in every field. Often the worst damage they cause might be in those sandy fields. And, and I would argue that it might be more common to see moderate nematode damage that may just cause a little stunting and yellow plants. And that would be a good place to start your scouting efforts. And if you were choosing to collect samples, I think I would start there.
0: We'll talk about the uh, new kid on the block, the bacterial leaf streak. What are we looking for for this year? And is this really going to be one of the things people should be keeping their eyes out for?
1: You know, this disease, bacterial leaf streak, is still pretty new to us. Uh, we've just only first confirmed it officially in 2016, and uh, but it is quite right, widespread. We've actually confirmed the pathogen in samples from 74 Nebraska counties since 2016. And so it's over most of the state, although it's much more common in some areas than in others. And so what I would watch for is the development of irregular brown to tan lesions that will develop between the leaf veins on corn leaves. And they're they're usually very irregular and I mean that it's not that they're they're not perfectly rectangular they may have margins that are a little bit wavy and they may have a yellow discoloration that seems to be pretty consistent in what we're seeing so I would hold those up to the light and see if you can see that bright yellow discoloration and that might be a clue that that's what you're seeing we are seeing that already in Nebraska and that's not uncommon we've been seeing bacterial leaf streak development very early in the season, and it can continue to develop and spread for the rest of the season as long as we have favorable conditions. And so uh, I would make sure and familiarize yourself with that one because it can be easy to mistake that disease for some other common ones like gray leaf spot.
0: So Tamara, has there been any data collected on what the effects of bacterial leaf streak are on yield
1: our lab has actually been working on that for a couple of years now the first time that we began to work on that impact on yield as you can imagine when you're doing research on something and you and you need to have substantial disease to see the impacts that you're trying to record you don't always see that and that's what happened to us in 2017 And so I'd I'd never felt like we had severe enough disease to do that. In 2018, we did get more severe disease. And in fact, to the point that we needed to control the disease in our comparison plots. And so what we did was we actually made applications of copper bactericides and other products in an effort to slow it down because we have to have plots with little to no disease to compare with those that have severe disease to really get a a good measurement on what that yield impact would be. In a nutshell, the results from our experiments have been inconclusive to this point, and we don't have data to share on that yet. One thing I would keep in mind though is any kind of leaf disease and its impact on yield is going to depend on how much leaf area is lost. So very much like what you would expect with gray leaf spot, the more lesions you have, the bigger they are, and the more leaf area affected is, the greater the yield impact might be. And so um, this disease will probably work similarly, and we will certainly share results from our experiments as soon as we have them available.
0: So you briefly talked a little bit about control. Bacterial leaf streak, you have the word bacterial in there. I'm guessing this is a lot different to control because it's not a fungal disease, it's a bacterial disease. Are there good methods to control it that are affordable?
1: Well, just like you said, unfortunately, the foliar fungicides that we've become accustomed to using on fungal diseases are not effective at controlling this pathogen. And that makes it even more important to get an accurate diagnosis if you're unsure about what is out there, which disease you're looking at. And so as far as management goes, we take advantage of the fact that we know this bacterium is surviving in infected crop debris from previous years. And so I would take advantage of crop rotation and I would also work with my seed company agronomist and let them know that you've got this disease and that you want to select a hybrid that is one that might have better resistance or tolerance. It's very difficult right now, though, to work with this bacterium, and we're working with our seed company representatives and trying to do that, and so you might not see ratings in our seed catalogs yet as far as this disease goes, but many of them have ideas on which ones they've seen perform better in the presence of disease, and so I would... Keep that in mind, your hybrid selection. But unfortunately, in the product testing that we've conducted to this point, we have not had consistent benefits with the use of bactericides, for instance. And so, uh, especially not with single applications, and we're, we're still going to continue to work with those. But at the moment, we, we can't recommend any of those products for use to control this disease.
0: So you, you would say at this time, um, hybrid selection is a better form of control or management for bacterial leaf streak rather than using a bacterial side?
1: Yes, definitely. That in crop rotation, I would I would give that a shot.
0: So we've been talking about corn mostly, but just seeing how wet and humid it is, what, what diseases might we be facing in soybeans this coming year that may be out there or maybe in two to the three weeks might be more of an issue
1: well as we move forward there's of course a number of different diseases in both crops that could be favored by wet or humid conditions and some of them are also dependent on temperature so we'll have to watch that very closely we have uh, <clears throat> we have a number of common diseases to watch for for instance in some parts of the state we've had annual problems with white mold on soybean, for instance. And if we have wet conditions and high humidity around flowering, we could see infection by the white mold fungus. And subsequent development of of the white mold disease in the field, that's more common in our northern counties, but we are seeing some of it down in the southern counties and southeast parts of the state, too, all dependent on weather conditions. And thankfully, we do have some predictive models to help us anticipate that. Other diseases that I would watch for as the season moves forward would be if we've had warm, humid conditions, I would watch for frog eye leaf spot. And that that disease is becoming increasingly common in Nebraska and other parts of the country. And, you know, it really depends on the conditions and the susceptibility of the varieties, how severe that might become. It's important though, to know that you have that disease and it's especially important, I want everyone to understand that if you choose to manage that fungus with a fungicide, we have fungicides that work very effectively for that disease. But it's important that everyone understand that we do have documented fungicide resistance in states around Nebraska. In fact, in counties bordering Nebraska, it's very possible that we may have fungicide resistance in Nebraska that has not been confirmed yet. And so if you choose to make fungicide applications to control this disease, I would encourage you in the two, three, four weeks after that application to monitor disease development. And if you don't see a reduction in uh, disease or at least a slowdown of the spread of that disease, I would ask that you collect samples or, or let someone know so that we can test some of that tissue and see if you're experiencing a fungicide resistance. Unfortunately, the fungicide resistance that we are observing in other states is to the QOI, the quinone outside inhibitor fungicides. And that's the same that's the same class of products that we've historically called strobilurines. And there's some of our most effective products at controlling this disease. But unfortunately, if they're used alone or repeatedly, you can see resistance development to them. And it's a a single site mode of action and a mutation. And so if you develop resistance to one of them, you'll have resistance to all of them in that class. And so in that case, we always recommend the use of a, a product that has two or more products from different classes so that we're not forcing the development of resistance and that it will give you more adequate control of the disease. That's
0: all very good information there, uh, especially on strategies on how to actually keep our fungicide technologies effective, which would be using a project that has two different modes of action. So. Yes,
1: two or more. We have a number of different products available to us now.
0: So, we're coming to the end of the Crop Watch podcast. I have some information to get out. The first one is that there will be a free field day near Carlton, Nebraska for a glyphosate resistant Palmer amaranth management and that one will be on July 10th starting at 8:30. And lastly, there is the South Central Agricultural Laboratory field day which will be Thursday, August 1st. Uh, With that, thank you, Tamara, for joining us today. Have a good growing season.
1: Thanks, you too.